0: Morning. It's Monday, September the 11th, 2023. Welcome to Now with Dave Brown, coming to you on AMI TV. I'm Dave Brown. Let's hit the horns and go. Up on the show today, the G20 summit took place over the weekend. Canadian Press Weekend news editor Michelle McQuigg discusses what goes into covering a large-scale event abroad. Shelly Petit explores how federal and provincial elections can be made more accessible for voters with disabilities. And the CNIB is selling Braille Lego sets. Stephen Scott will put the pieces together for you. But the show begins with the top story of the day. You heard me say it right there in the billboards. The G20 summit is in the books. Global leaders discussed a range of issues. The three big topics, the war on Ukraine, sort of, infrastructure and supply chains. The consensus statement did call for an end to infrastructure attacks in wars. It did not mention the war in Ukraine directly. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau thought the statement was not up to snuff.
1: If it was just up to me, the leader's declaration would have been much stronger, particularly on Ukraine. If it was just up to other countries around the table, it would have been much weaker, particularly on Ukraine. The G20 is a extremely disparate group, uh, and we worked very hard to get uh, as strong language as we possibly could.
0: There was some pretty notable policy progress at the summit. U.S. President Joe Biden outlined plans to create a rail and shipping corridor linking India with the Middle East and Europe. Officials say the corridor will help boost trade, transport energy resources, and improve digital connectivity. Biden thinks this policy can transform regions. This
2: is a real big deal. and I want to thank you, Mr. Prime Minister. One earth, one family, one future. That's the focus of this uh, G20 summit.
0: The G20 has welcomed the African Union into its ranks. South Africa had been the only African nation involved in the group previously. Indian Foreign Secretary Subramanian Jabingshar reflected on the significance of that decision.
3: It is a matter of particular satisfaction for us that the African Union has this morning become a permanent member of the G20. That too during the Indian presidency. This is in keeping with the priority that we attach to addressing the urgent concerns of the global south.
0: There was some drama Over the weekend, Trudeau and Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi were publicly chilly with each other throughout the weekend. Trudeau pulled away from a long handshake at one event. He also skipped the host dinner. The two leaders did have a short sidebar meeting during the summit. Trudeau understands that India can still be a key international partner.
1: We recognize that India is an extraordinarily important uh, economy in the world and uh, an important uh, partner to Canada on everything from fighting climate change to creating growth and prosperity for citizens. There's always a lot of work to do, and we will continue to do it.
0: Getting out of India has been a challenge for the Prime Minister. His delegation is having airplane problems. The Canadian Armed Forces is sending a plane to pick them up. Rob Westgate has the latest.
2: A press secretary for the prime minister's office says Trudeau is working to leave New Delhi Tuesday morning local time. Mohammed Hussein says they'll be keeping the public updated as the situation remains fluid. Now, the reason given for the extended stay was a component on the PM's usual plane had to be replaced. The issue being discovered during the pre-flight check as the Canadian delegation was waiting at the airport to board the flight. Still, the PMO says Trudeau wants to be at the Liberal Caucus retreat starting this Wednesday in London, Ontario, with the Canadian Armed Forces doing their best to get the delegation back to Canada. Rob Westgate, the Canadian Press.
0: U.S. President Joe Biden also extended his stay in South Asia. He followed up the G20 summit with a trip to Vietnam. The United States and Vietnam have reached an agreement to elevate their diplomatic status. Biden says his entire trip to the Indo-Pacific region was about building relationships.
2: Having India cooperate much more with the United States, be closer to the United States, Vietnam being closer with the United States, it's not about containing China. It's about having a stable
0: base a stable base in the
2: Indo-Pacific.
0: Okay, that's international diplomacy and trade coming back to Canada. The Federal Conservatives held their policy convention in Quebec City. Leader Pierre Poliev wants the party to focus on domestic production in economic policy. We should create more of what cash buys, grow more food, build more homes, and produce more resources right here in Canada. Bring it home. Polyev also took some time to criticise the current government. They no longer have to give up the things that we used to take for granted.
2: Affordable homes and foods to pay for the incompetence and ego of one man. After eight years, Justin Trudeau is not worth the cost and he is not worth the country that we know and that we love.
0: Former Conservative Cabinet Minister Peter McKay gave Poliev a big endorsement.
1: Discussing this with, with my wife, Nazanin, and family and friends back in Central Nova. And so I figured there's no better place than here with all of you to let you in on a little secret.
0: I believe Pierre Potiev will be the next Prime Minister of Canada. It was not all hugs and sunshine at the convention, though. British Columbia delegate Benjamin Strothett thinks the party needs a clearer policy on climate.
1: I hear every single time I go to a door that we need more environmental policies, we need to talk about it. Please give me the tools I need to win.
0: I don't want a liberal MP anymore. There were several votes on policy related to gender issues. A contentious one had to do with whether or not trans-identifying teenagers should be able to seek medical interventions. It passed with 69% support. Some delegates were not happy. Nova Scotia delegate Dr. Lisa Borreg thinks any curtailing of freedom goes against party principles.
4: As a family physician, part of what I do is determine competency, capacity for consent, and age alone does not determine the ability to consent. This policy stands against the values of a party to embrace freedom and bodily autonomy. A vote for this is voting against what you say you are all against for, and it's pure hypocrisy.
0: A reminder that no delegate votes are binding in future policymaking for the party. Moving over to the daily polls, at Accessible Media is where you find the show on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. is where you find the show on Facebook. On Friday, you were asked, do you keep your software, or the software, on your devices up to date? 78% of you said yes, and 22% of you said no. That was all due to the news story. There was an urgent security software patch iPhone users had to install late last week. So 78% of you, very hygiene-oriented when it comes to your devices, at least internally speaking. Not sure how often you're busting out the Lysol wipes on your screen. Today's daily poll is going to relate to something Stephen Scott will talk about later in the show, all about the CNIB selling Braille Lego sets. Begs this question, at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook, what is a childhood hobby that you have never given up? Lego? Puzzles? Video games? Dolls? Slash action figures? Ooh, Mike Ross, you are pinch hitting for Alex Smythe today. Much appreciated to have you as part of the show. I think you and I both have the uh, occasional dabbling into the video game world.
1: Yeah, 100%. Uh, I'm, I'm a lot more sort of far, a few and far between. I can sometimes go a couple of months without playing the video games, but I always do go back. But I gotta tell you, Dave, honestly, it's really hard to give up the Lego yeah um, all these years that I've been a substitute teacher, my favorite times are when I'm in a junior kindergarten or a kindergarten class because they get playtime and that means I get to sit down with some Lego and <laughs> I can think of many a time <laughs> when I've sat down with Lego and started building stuff and just like I'm so into it and then all of a sudden, there's like six or seven little four and five year olds gathered around my table watching like, (laughs) Whoa, look at what he's making. He's so good. (laughs) It makes me feel good, but it just makes me feel creative too. I love playing with Legos. I don't know if it's just because I have this creative side that is untapped most of the time, or if it really is just about going back to my childhood, but I love the Legos and uh, being with the four and five year olds makes it real easy.
0: Yeah, when I say childhood hobby, I don't mean to imply that all these activities are childlike. You think about the popularity of things like adult coloring books or just Mm -hmm. arts and crafts in general. Just because something is artsy doesn't mean it isn't for adults to engage in. It's great for the mind. It's great for the soul. And that's where I want to bring in Amanda Shikarchi on this one, too. Amanda, what are some of the childhood hobbies that you find yourself uh, not being able to give up?
3: Yeah, sometimes I too would dabble in like video games, like when like the family's over, we'll like play on the Wii console um, with like directions. And as you guys were talking about too, Lego is a bunch of fun. I actually learned Braille using the Braille Legos that you guys are going to discuss later in the show, and those are a lot of fun.
0: So you used the Braille Legos to learn Braille. Why do you think that? helped you learn the writing format or, 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 the, or the symbols?
3: Because I'm very much a hands-on learner, and I also really like being creative. So be able to have that kind of creative outlet and kind of seeing Braille outside of like, oh, this is a learning tool. Like kind of, you know, as a little kid, you always want to see things as being fun and not like oh I actually have to sit down and learn this so (laughs) I think for me it was like a great outlet to look at Braille in like a creative way and like I also used to do that with arts and crafts as well like I used to always mix up the I's and E's because in Braille they're like two dots that are diagonal from each other in Mm -hmm. opposite directions so my Braille teachers would have me like use like beads or pom-poms and just make the letters a bunch of times that I would remember which one is what
0: mike i'm not sure that uh, ncaa football uh, 2010 for the xbox 360 for me or mlb the show uh, 2010 for you on the ps2 uh would quite help us learn braille
1: no not at all uh, <laughs> but it does get me through some uh, some long afternoons for sure and you know what it, it, the funny thing is dave and you, you i know you're saying that it's kind of in jest about the the old game systems but I do still have a Wii and I do still have a PS3 and you know, the, the, the younger people that I work with or hang out with when you say, Oh yeah, well I've got PS3 and they go, Oh, what? <laughs> a, a P three? <laughs> oh, well yeah, because five comes after four, which comes after three. You See, I had it two generations ago and they, they get a real kick out of that. Of course, I would love to have the most up to date rosters and all the stadiums and everything, but I also have some imagination. Yeah. And uh, that pays off when I'm playing <laughs> the old games and saving myself $1,000 on the new system.
0: So I like to create my own universe out in the world that I yep. live. Mike, thank you for this. Great to have you aboard today. Talk to you in a couple minutes for the uh, weather story of the day. Amanda will talk to you for the entertainment report in about uh, 40 minutes or so. In the meantime, you can vote on the poll at Accessible Media on Twitter, at Accessible Media Inc. on Facebook. You can also chime in via email feedback at AMI.ca, feedback at AMI.ca, or pick up the phone, 1 509 4545. What is a childhood hobby that you have not given up? Coming up after the break, I just gave you the news about the G20. But how did all that news come together? Michelle McQuig of the Canadian Press will offer up some insights on what goes into covering a large-scale event abroad. This is now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. You just heard me yammering on about the G20 Summit and the Federal Conservative Policy Convention. They sucked up a lot of the news oxygen over the weekend. They received extensive coverage in different ways. What goes into covering a large-scale event, especially one that is taking place on the other side of the planet? It requires some remote resourcing. Michelle McQuig can give some perspective on that. Michelle is the weekend news editor at the Canadian Press. Hey, good morning, Michelle.
4: Good morning, Dave.
0: So Michelle, you may not have been at the news editor's desk this weekend, taking a little bit (laughs) of well-deserved time off, but this summit itself does not come as a surprise. There's lots of lead up. How much pre-planning goes in in terms of a strategy to cover an event of this scale?
4: There's quite a lot of planning, and I have to say, the bulk of that lands on the shoulders of the bureau chief who handles our parliamentary bureau. In that case, that's my fabulous colleague Joanna Smith, whose name might be familiar to some of you who follow politics more extensively. Uh, There is a lot of planning that goes involved that goes into this. There's lots of coordination with the Prime Minister's Office. We have to send staff. So when when the Prime Minister goes abroad, a a number of media follow them, and, and we have we are no exception. In fact, sometimes we get a bit additional access. Because we bring a photographer with us and sometimes the Canadian press gets to go in and be the primary pool reporter in these events that so gets to be in the room for some pretty cool exchanges and have some cool experiences. So the reporters that go on the road with the Prime Minister, um, it, it's an exhausting time every single time. There's it, It's wall-to-wall meetings and, and news conferences and, and events and moving all over the place and sending pool notes back to everybody and, and filing stories. It, it's, it's relentless pacing but they also get some incredibly cool experiences. I remember one reporter last year when covering uh, I think it was the G20 or the G7, I forget which, got to go on like a helicopter flight over the Alps. Like it was, they get to do some really cool stuff. Um but it's it's absolutely relentless.
0: I, I, Michelle, I want to I want to talk about all of those elements. You just set the table beautifully with that answer. <laughs> you talked right. about the coolness that goes in with sometimes being pulled behind the curtain or pulled behind the rope here. Along those lines what what's the merit of having somebody on the ground with that kind of access, that kind of proximity?
4: Oh, it, it's unparalleled, because what comes out of the... If you wait for official communications, if you read a lot of the, the readouts of conversations between the Prime Minister and various world leaders, uh, the Prime Minister's office always provides summaries, but there's really no comparison between getting an official recap prepared by the Prime Minister's office and having a reporter right there on the ground to, to, to be there... To, to report on what goes on, to report on the, the, the nuances of the dynamics between the leaders, for instance, any any yeah, sort of meaningful yeah. exchanges, right? Like there's so many little things that an official recap prepared by one of the involved parties will not capture. It just won't. So there's no substitute for having a photographer on scene to capture some of those things, to have a reporter to, to hear things and, and get some broader context context. Um, like there's i just can't even stress how much mm-hmm. the, these are apples and oranges these two
0: approaches there's actually a, a pretty clear example of that this weekend from the g20 where if you just looked from 10,000 feet above prime minister trudeau and prime minister modi of india had a rough weekend together like it publicly speaking at public events it was uh, not pretty there was a handshake that was a little bit chilly there was a skipping of an official dinner but then if you have somebody on the ground they could actually note a couple sidebar meetings a lot of sidebar meetings one that took place with Modi and Trudeau themselves others with other members of the delegation you can't capture that in official communiques unless you've got somebody on the ground observing
4: exactly exactly right you just illustrated it perfectly so this is exactly why someone needs to be there among other things I mean the fact is that the Canadian prime minister at all times we have a reporter with him when he's doing public events because there's always the possibility of news um, in an international context is essentially a certainty of news. So that's why it's really important to have someone on the ground there.
0: Michelle, maybe I'm nerding out a little bit on this one. So I apologize for the uh, no, journalism navel gazing over here. How does a news desk back home manage what is a glaring time zone difference? <laughs> uh, like like this, this obviously this is a, no, a exactly. captain obvious. This is a captain obvious statement. But there's pretty much nowhere further in the world from Canada than India.
4: Yeah, no you you got it exactly and it's not a nerdy question because it is a it is a thing that we deal with. The logistics around a, a trip to Asia from the Prime Minister undoubtedly is a hurdle that we have to, to address and plan for. So what happens, uh, Joanna Smith, the, the bureau chief who coordinates a lot of this also is very heavily involved in, in planning and mapping things out in great detail. So we get copies of the itinerary, those of us who are involved in the editing, whether it's on the weekends or the overnight deskers, and they play an important role during these things. Cause of course that's when the time zones mostly align the evening and overnight people. So we get very detailed notes as to what events are happening at what times, <clears throat> um, The reporter will file during the evening and overnight hours. So those deskers have a little more work to take on than they would normally have when things in theory, at least, are quiet, though that's far from a certainty these days. Um, So the reporter will be filing material. The fact that we have our desk staffed 24 hours a day, as a matter of course, does help because we do have resources in place, but they have to be prepared to do things a bit differently. Um, getting audio content out can be tricky as well because our, our staffing is more geared towards uh, radio cycles that uh, don't include overnight.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm.
4: Yeah. As you can just imagine that. Although, <laughs> so although we...
0: th- although this guy who collects audio in the morning is grateful for uh, fresh, uh, fresh actualities at my fingertips in the morning. No
4: doubt. <laughs> um, we do try to get some stuff in for the, for the morning run because that's, and that part does work out. Okay. Because the, the, a lot of the major activity, is wrapping up by, or at least sort of starting to wind down by 4 a.m. or 4 p.m. or so, their time would be 4 a.m., our time. Mm-hmm. So that's mm-hmm. usually when a lot of our audio starts to flow. Um. Anyhow, so that, that all happens. But the other big complication can be news conferences. If there's a news conference taking place at 3.30 a.m., uh, that can be a bit of a hassle. And in that case, uh, it's our lovely Ottawa Bureau who steps up to the plate, and one of the people there usually comes in to help Uh, what we call backstopping the reporter there. Mm Because when they're holding a camera in the news conference, they can't be the ones also writing and saying, you know, what just got communicated in the news conference, what came out of it. So someone needs to be there in in Toronto or in Ottawa or somewhere back home anyway, uh, writing things up and, and handling that news conference. So we do have to bring in a couple of extra people usually when there is a middle of the night news conference like this.
0: Michelle, you used the words cool and chaotic to describe the experience of a reporter on the ground or a camera person on the ground doing these kinds of large scale events. I'm not meaning to flex my bona fides here. I'm not meaning to do a look at me Louie concept, but I once lived my life as a field reporter and uh, doing small features and going to a lot of events around the Ottawa area that typically were more within the guise of a couple of hours or maybe a full day situation. I cannot imagine being accountable to somebody else's schedule and agenda for three or four days in different countries. I would lose my mind, dude. You...
4: Try ten days. That's what it made. Mickey Jurich has been on the road since last Sunday, and she's still there right now.
0: Like this has been because <laughs> of plane troubles. Because <laughs> the plane exactly get them home yep. yet?
4: You bet. So this like she's she's probably I, I don't have any clue how she's even vertical right now. Um, but yeah, you're, it is, it is totally exhausting and, and they have gone on trips as long as 10 days. I mean, Dylan Robertson, a colleague of mine last year had one that I think that it was five countries in 10 days.
0: Like it's. Yeah.
4: Yeah. I, I get exhausted reading the itinerary. <laughs> I, I don't know how they actually like do it.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm I'm someone who uh, who requires uh, certain moments of aloneness and uh, and time to recharge and recharge the batteries. And uh, being on somebody else's schedule does not always work for me, Michelle. Let's bring this thing a little closer to home because the other big convention this weekend was the Conservative Policy Convention. I suppose in some circles the Hockey Canada Convention was also a big one too. But let's mm-hmm. put that aside for the for the moment. The Conservative sure. Policy convention is a little bit different. It's closer to home. It's in the Quebec-Windsor corridor. That said, it's still a large-scale event. Thousands of delegates coming from across the country, big, notable figures. You you mentioned before that there's a lot of pre-planning that goes into something like the G20. What kind of strategy goes into covering something like the Federal Policy Convention of the Conservative Party? Can it be a little bit more go with the flow?
4: A little, yes, but th- there is also quite a lot of planning involved there and, and it and lots of prep. What helps in a case like this is to have the formal beat reporter who knows this file in and out, who has all kinds of party contacts, be the one to staff this event. And that's exactly what happened when my colleague Stephanie Taylor took up the pen for all the conservative policy happenings over the weekend. Uh, this is a beat that she covers, a file she knows really well. I know she was doing a lot of prep work and pre-interviewing and pre-writing. Actually, she worked a shift with me last week, and that's what I left her free to do. I didn't assign her anything because I knew she had a lot of stuff coming up this week. Um, so it, there is a certain amount of, of advanced work one can do. Uh, you, you reach out to line up some of your people to, to call when policies drop so you can get some context. You work your sources to get a get a feel for how things are going to shake out. I don't know what staff's specific process was in this case because I was not working this weekend. Mm -hmm, But mm -hmm. there absolutely is uh, days, if not weeks, worth of prep that can go into something like this. But in this case, it does help that we a we knew exactly when it was going to happen. Delegations also are some or excuse me conventions are are something that we have staff before and have a, a bit of a playbook that one can work from if it's your first time doing so. Um, but having someone with a really deep knowledge of the file and the players involved
0: makes a massive difference in a yeah, case like this. No doubt about it. Well, Michelle, you deserved a couple of days off. I hope you enjoyed them at beautiful Spa Nordique in Gatineau, Quebec. Oh, it
1: was bliss. Uh,
0: sauna, was so steam room, hot tubs, cold plunge. Michelle, if you oh, had to oh. choose, I'm putting you into a forced binary in the way that you hate me doing it. Sauna or <laughs> Steam room. Steam room. If I had
4: to choose, Steam Room.
0: You are right on the money. Michelle, with that that consensus, let us say goodbye. I will talk to you on Friday as part of the news panel. Sounds great. Have a good week, Dave. That's Michelle McQuig, Weekend News Editor at the Canadian Press. Coming up after the break, Shelley Petit explores some of the ways federal and provincial elections can be made more accessible for people with disabilities. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. The Manitoba election is taking place on October the 3rd. Megan Gilmore is going to have an accessibility report in the next couple days about what organizations in the province want politicians to be talking about in regards to accessibility heading into that election. No matter where you're voting, though accessibility at the polls is always a concern. Shelley Petit is the chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. The organization was recently reached out to by Elections Canada and Elections New Brunswick to make voting more inclusive. Hello, Shelley. Hello, Dave, how are you? Shelly, I'm great, I always like talking about politics, especially making it more possible for people Mm -hmm. to make their voice heard at the polls. One thread that seems to be consistent across all jurisdictions is barriers to access in voting. What are some of the barriers to voting your organization has seen in New Brunswick? Uh,
5: If there's a barrier, we have it in New Brunswick. Last election, I saw ramps made out of platforms on, like, just like, or sorry, platform ramps made out of, like, plywood on some two-by-fours that were, like, tipping, trying to get my mom up one in a a wheelchair. It was disastrous. They have long hallways with no lighting. There's no large print signs, stairs. Um, The way they treat blind people or low vision who want to vote um it, it's just it's egregious how we're treated to vote and it's why people with disabilities give up and throw their hands in their in the air and say well what's the sense then but we have to vote if we are going to force a hand of, of accessibility in this country our numbers have to show up and vote because we are the largest demographic and they will have to listen to us if we all show up and vote
0: yeah, that's, that is ultimately the fundamental crux of this. People with disabilities yes. need to cast their vote and have their voices heard no matter what party they're voting for, but mm-hmm. they need to be able to vote. They've got to be able to get the yes. polls and they've got to be able to do it. Uh, so, shall And we, we
5: need to be able to run as well. We oh, need yeah. to be able to run. And you know, when you can't even get in to vote, how are they ever going to expect us to be able to run?
0: Yeah, there was a story out of Scotland last year where one of the candidates who was a wheelchair user could not b- get to the debate because there was no wheelchair. Yeah. Like, the building wasn't wheelchair accessible, so she was just left out in the cold, unable to attend a yeah. candidate's debate because she had a disability. Like, it's unbelievable. Noddy
5: but not surprising sadly
0: I, but not surprising that that's the thing unbelievable not surprising it sounds like a contradiction but it's the way it is
5: yeah. uh, so it's Shelley, life with a disability
0: <laughs> so, so so let's let's start unpacking some of this stuff yep. I, I don't know how much of this is going to be new ground but what's the importance of independence and privacy for a voter <sighs> as they're getting into the poll
5: it's unbelievable we would not go to up uh, to an able bodied adult male or female and say, you know, we're gonna pretend it's an 1850 and you're gonna stand on a box and shout out who you're voting for. Yet that's how people with disabilities are treated if you're allowed to vote. Um, you know, we've had people question people with some intellectual disabilities, if they should be allowed to vote or vote independently. Um, I don't know if most people know, but if in New Brunswick at least, and I'm assuming it's the same way across Canada, if you're blind and you need to vote, there's no braille ballot available. There's no audio vote available. So you have to have an elect person from elections, New Brunswick or Canada come with you behind the divider and they mark your ballot for you. How do you know that they've actually marked the ballot with who you've told them to mark it for? Mm. Like that that's egregious. That is just that's a that's you know, that's not voting. That's not democracy. And it's just it floors me that in 2023, we can't do better.
0: What about something as simple as the location of the poll, where it's going to be located in a riding?
5: Yeah, so in New Brunswick, we've had both provincially and federally, we've had um, our ridings change, quite a few riding changes through the last two um, reviews of ridings because of population changes. So that's gonna cause a huge problem because when you change your ridings, you're gonna change your regular polling stations. Most of our polling stations as it is tend to be really old churches um, that half the time are not on a bus route, certainly not on an accessible bus route. They have stairs, they have long hallways, they don't have good lighting that we need. Signage is tiny that you can't read if you have a vision issue. no chairs put out or if there are chairs they don't have arms to help people with mobility issues stand and then how are we supposed to get there uh yeah social development doesn't feel that we should leave our homes after four o'clock they question if you need transportation after four o'clock they're allowed to go out as regular people but people with disabilities apparently cannot so we need to get be able to get to polling stations and when you change them because you've changed ridings You change routines on people and they need to work with us to make sure these polling stations are the proper polling stations for people.
0: Yeah, the transportation side of it is a really important one. And Mm Shelly, I know you're probably sick of me saying this. It's one of the uh, trigger words in the now with Dave Brown drinking game. But kindness (laughs) is not a replicate, does not replicate good policy. Sure, there are lots of organizations or parties that will offer you a lift to the polls, but like that's kindness and in the case of political parties it's almost a little bit cynical there like i don't understand why a polling station can't just be on a main street
5: you know like put it on a main street put it on a main street make sure the bus goes there and it's an accessible bus because i should not have to rely on the kindness of someone else so i can do my independent responsibility and duty as a citizen to vote i should be able to get there when i want and vote the way I want and not have to rely on someone else to help me get there.
0: The New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities is going to be sending a letter of recommendations to both Elections New Brunswick and Elections Canada. What would be the next steps for implementing your recommendations?
5: Well, one of the things that we're gonna ask, it's our ask and we're hoping is we want them to, before they even pick a polling station, They need to be talking with disability groups in that area and not just, and I'm sorry, I don't want to offend anyone here, not just people with mobility disabilities, because they tend to think that as long as it's wheelchair accessible, we've met all the requirements. Well, that's not the only disability in New Brunswick or in Canada or in the world. So we should have a list. We're going to recommend that Elections Canada has sort of a pre-made list, but at least for the first four or five elections, that checklist is not good enough. They need people with lived experience checking out each of these polls and telling them if it works or not. And if it doesn't work, then X, that can't be the poll, and we move on and find something else that works.
0: Shelly, looking a bit more broadly here, when you're talking about elections New Brunswick or elections Canada and elections Ontario and elections BC, and then you mm-hmm. have city elections, and then you have school board trustee elections and bopity 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 boom. Yeah. What do you think it's going to take to create a little bit of consistency between these organizations? So you and I aren't having this conversation every time there's a provincial election or a city election in every city, province, state, etc.
5: Sadly, I think it's going to take big lawsuits. I, I hate to say that, but it we're at the point that, you know, we have an Accessible Canada Act that's in place. They don't want to listen to it. Um, They want to keep doing it the way they've always done it because it doesn't affect them. So either let people with disabilities run elections, New Brunswick elections, Canada elections, Ontario. Maybe that's one way to make sure it's accessible. Or it's going to require really big human law human rights lawsuits that force them to do it. We shouldn't have to force them. They should do it because it's the right thing. But I mm. don't know if that's, sometimes I just, I shake my head and say, how can you just exclude 25% of the Canadian population from from voting? Like, how is that even still considered okay in this, this day and age? How does any political party allow it to happen when those could be the votes that put them over the top? They're the ones that should be fighting to make sure we get to vote prop, get to vote yeah. and vote independently.
0: The most basic fundamental tenet of democracy is people need Voted. to be able to vote, especially those who are marginalized. Uh, Shelly, yes. it's always intense when you and I chat, but it's always solutions yeah. focused. And that's why I like talking to you.
5: Awesome. Can't wait for next month. Can't
0: wait for the next one. That's Shelley Petit, chair of the New Brunswick Coalition of Persons with Disabilities. In 60 seconds, Mike Ross has the weather story of the day. But first, here is Canadian press reporter Rob Westgate with your Morning Business minutes.
2: Broad-based weakness pulled Bay Street lower last week, with the metals and tech sectors weighing the markets down most. Toronto's S&P TSX losing 57 points to close at 20,075. In New York, the Dow Jones Industrial Average actually gained 76 points up to 34,577, while the NASDAQ rose 13 points up to 13,762. Stock markets in Asia were mixed this morning, with Japan's Nikkei down 139 points at 32,468. As for the Hang Seng in Hong Kong, ahead of closing, it was down over 200 points. The former CEO of Alibaba has resigned, sinking the company's Hong Kong-traded shares by 3.5% this morning. And a group of leading tech developers are acknowledging that growing demand for their AI tools carries hefty costs from expensive semiconductors to an increase in water consumption. And the loonie is trading at 73.57 cents U.S. From the Canadian Press Business Desk, I'm Rob Westgate.
0: Thank you very much, Rob, from the world of business to the world of the weather. A fun new graphic and a fun new sting. Bringing in Mike Ross with a look at Hurricane Lee.
1: Dave, uh, Hurricane Lee is uh, turning northward. After the uh, west or over the western Atlantic this week. So that means that uh, interests in Bermuda, Atlantic Canada, and the northeast seaboard of the United States will continue to have to monitor the uh, forecast very closely. Now, this is a hurricane that is going to send dangerous high surf and rip currents to the US East Coast. Regardless of where it tracks over the next several days, the latest on this hurricane is that it's centered about 200 miles north of the northwestern Leeward Islands and is moving west northwest and we're rather wind shear caused lee to weaken significantly over the weekend but as of late last night it has re-emerged and restrengthened back to a category five hurricane and as of uh, this 2023 hurricane season it is the strongest measured uh, by speed hurricane this season now Over the next five days, Lee's Center will continue to pass well north of the northern Leeward Islands, including Puerto Rico and the Virgin Islands, in the next day or two. After that, the forecast becomes a little bit more uncertain and will depend on where lee eventually makes that northward turn during the middle of the week and it is forecast to undergo some additional strengthening early this week but then should weaken later on this week as it heads a little bit farther out to sea and is going to run into some of the remnants of hurricane franklin and hurricane adalia because the water temperatures in that part of the north atlantic are a lot cooler the remnants of those storms leave cooler water, which means that Hurricane Lee will lose a lot of its strength. So Mm. fingers crossed for the northeast of the U.S. and Atlantic Canada. You got to keep your ears open Mm -hmm. on the forecast over the next four or five days.
0: Absolutely. Mike, thank you for this. Looking forward to talking to you about wasps in about an hour. You got it, Dave. <laughs> That's Mike Ross with the buzz on the weather. Coming up after the break, entertainment critic Amy Amanti has a review of the Netflix horror movie, Killer Book Club. This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Welcome back. It's now with Dave Brown on AMI TV. Halloween is around the corner. You can tell because the number one film at the North American box office this weekend was a horror flick, The Nun Part Two, pulled in thirty-six point two million dollars. Horror movies are also popping up all over streaming services. Some are good. Some are bad. Where does Killer Book Club land on that spectrum? Amy Amanti can tell you. Amy is an entertainment critic. Good morning, Amy hey good morning dave happy monday <laughs> happy monday to you too Happy horror monday happy horror monday we're being very careful with our enunciation and pronunciation on that one as we work our way through this segment so killer book club uh received a uh, pretty poor reviews rotten tomatoes has an audience score of 30 percent. not to mention it's a spanish film so why on earth did you want to press play on this one
6: Oh, you know, I'm a fan of the horror genre in general, but you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to hit play was I'm also interested in foreign films and very rarely are foreign films made accessible. So this one is a Spanish film and it's dubbed in English and has English audio description. And that's very rare and because it's, uh, dubbed in English, and uh, I don't see the facial expressions. Anyways, you know some you, some people are uh, criticized the dubbing because you know the uh, the English doesn't match the you know the 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 words coming out because they're speaking in yeah, Spanish. Yeah, That doesn't that doesn't bother me. I don't see the face, um, so it doesn't bother me at all. And dubbing is getting so much better in that they hire actual actors to do the dubbing, and so um it, it's not sort of like reading out subtitles in, in a sense that, that that's how dubbing used to be right where yeah. they were just read, reading it out so the quality is so much better and i have been able to over since since uh since the streaming services began experience some really cool um foreign films that are are dubbed in english and uh and have english audio description so anytime i get a chance to experience one and there's a lot of them out there that i think oh that'd be so cool and then i go oh No English job, no English audio description. So that's kind of why I thought I'd give it a chance just to see (laughs) what they were doing in Spain.
0: Pressing play just to let them know that, hey, if you're going to do this for me, I'm going to represent. If you build it, if you build it, I will come. I will show up and I will hit play on this. Uh, Amy, one of the best horror movies of the last 20 years was a Spanish film that eventually became a North American film. It was called Quarantine. I forget what the exact Spanish Mm. title was, but it became the North American film Quarantine, which wasn't very good. The Spanish version was unbelievably scary and unbelievably good. How much did Killer Book Club live up to the billing of being a horror film?
6: Well, um, I would say that Killer Book Club kind of fits itself into the world of Scream and maybe uh, I Know What You Did Last Summer uh, in terms of its, well, it's more of a scream than an I Know What You Did Last Summer in terms of its um, uh, relation to cheesy horror. Um, you know, there are some, there, I, I look at horror as a spectrum. Um, Because there are some horror movies that are kind of a sci-fi, there are some that are paranormal, there are some that are psychological, there are some that are just thrasher, Um, You know, there are some that are good old murder mystery kind of horror genre. So there's a lot of, for me, a lot of different uh, genres, and some of them I find more terrifying than others. For me, if they're more of a paranormal, the more terrifying I find that, um, because you're messing in genres that I I find uh, uh, play with my mind a little yeah, bit more. Because yeah. I'm in a realm where I have no experience. like I know humans are cruel to each other. Right. But I don't know if ghosts exist and I don't know if people like there's no science that proves one way or another. Right. Those kinds of things messes my mind a little bit more. Um, So this is this is your you know, your your good old fashioned sort of who done it. It's a group of kids and one of them within the group is killing off each other. And so you're kind of trying to figure out which one of them in the book club is killing off. Yeah, each other, and, and and each week there's a chapter of the book that's released, and it tells you which one's gonna die and how they're gonna die. And
0: so you you did a you did a nice job of tap dancing around my question there. Yeah. Was it scary?
6: Nah, not
0: really. Yeah, okay, so thank you. Thank you for, thank you for giving me that, because I had something to but say was here. was Scream scary? No, it wasn't. But the thing no. is, Scream was authentically funny and, and paid homage to a lot of the films around it. The thing is, once Scream was made, every idiot who wanted to make a horror movie was like, I'm going to do Scream. But Scream was something that was a very, very special sauce. There was something very unique about yeah. the way and care. The fact that it was made by Wes Craven, the first one, like one of the great yeah. horror minds of all time, Showed you there was a love of the genre and all great horror movies are going to have a laugh or two built into them That's actually part of the nature of the emotional of, of the emotional toll of doing a scary movie A human reaction might be to laugh at something scary But to simply say we're going to do a comedy horror flick Then you better go all the way into scary movie rather than try to find the secret sauce that was scream
6: yeah, that's right. Um, you you have you, you have to have a release in any horror movie. There has to be some kind of release. If there's too much tension, um, you know, there has to be there has to be a break for a human being to to watch something. So, you'll find a moment in any in any horror movie where there's a little bit of a kind of a a crack, whether it's Alien or any of those movies, there's always a little bit of some kind of comic relief release. There's always a moment of it, right? Yeah. Um, what 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 I find that's kind of uh, the scream ripoff in this one is the mask work, and kind of the you know the the way that the characters move. Uh, the, 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 ki- the killer in the mask where, they, where ha- they have that jerky movement where he looks at you and you look at it and it's like, who's gonna move first, right? That kind of, uh, that, that psychological movement. And always the character in the mask, you know, moves, uh, <laughs> moves in a way that, um, you know, none of your friends move and it's it's such an interesting thing because you, you're trying you're sizing up this character to figure out which one of the six of the book club club members it's going to be based on what their movements are we would do the same with any of our you know friends that we know we know it's one of the they they tell us you know they diagnose that out of, out of the six of them in the beginning they know it's one of the one of the six of them right mm-hmm. and so you know based on like the gait that somebody walks or how athletic they are and how they move but this person moves outside of how any of them move. Right. And so that it kind of, you know, it kind of throws you off because you don't want to be able to figure out who it is, Yeah. but that in and of itself becomes the cheese factor of this, where it's like, yeah, this, you know, it just, it just the, the pieces don't add up. Um, and that, that in and of itself becomes, um, not enjoyable for me. Right. It's, it, it becomes part of the, uh, I don't know the, the gizmo of it all. That's not enjoyable.
0: Yeah, yeah, it, that's the be, authenticity it, of it. It's silly. It becomes so silly that it yeah. can that it cannot be scary. And hey, yeah. maybe if that's what they're going for, that's great. But you can't tell me. But you they're can't not tell me. Going for that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> they just don't know what they're going for. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Amy, audio description. Uh, you even mentioned it when you're talking about a foreign film, where maybe there's going to be a little bit less verbalized. This is where audio description is really going to come in handy how did the audio describers fare in capturing the essence of uh, what was supposed to be the horror genre?
6: Yeah, the audio description actually wasn't too bad. Um, You know, the the narration sort of speeds up in some of those more intense moments, you know, it kind of holds that intensity, which is nice. Um, In some of those moments where there is, Uh, a bit of a chase between killer and and the hunter and the huntee, right? Um, So I I, I kind of found that the audio description was a little bit more of a redeemer for me, Um, although I would have liked to have known what this clown mask looks like because in my mind, a clown mask really only looks like one thing. Um, and so anytime we have a clown, which is of course is such a cliche and you think of it often when you think of the, the scary clown sort of murder genre, and even when you think of it, that clown mask is never really, or that clown is never really described to you. So that leaves you with only your sort of cartoon clown or your, um, uh, your birthday party clown Mm
3: -hmm, and mm -hmm. so
6: this is not like while it's described as a clown is not really a clown type mask it's really sort of more of a big oversized happy face size clown a size uh mask very very large and round um not yellow white but like with one really big eye and one really small eye so it's kind of like an abstract clown so, I would have liked a little bit more uh, description around that because it's kind of awkward. And that's, you know, kind of like the scream mask. It's the shape of the mask that's creepy. Uh, and that's that's kind of the, the weird oddity of it that makes it a little bit scary.
0: Amy, you got to be quick on this one. Yeah. Uh, would you say Horror Book Club is a must watch?
6: I would say you can pass on this one all day
0: long. <laughs> We're going to call it a must pass. Uh Amy, th- pass. <laughs> Amy, thank you for this. Have a great day. Yeah, you too, Dave. That's Amy Amanti, entertainment critic, with a review of Killer Book Club. You can find the film on Netflix. In a moment, Amanda Shikarchi will have the entertainment report. But first, BMW is showing off their newest line of electric vehicles. Mike Dubusky plugs you in with Tech Trends.
2: Auto journalist Roberto Baldwin says for years, BMW lagged behind the competition when it came to alternative propulsion
0: vehicles. Years ago, BMW told us they were going to start building uh, this modular line where on the line you could build uh, an ICE vehicle, you could build an electric vehicle, you could build a hybrid vehicle. And then there was just years of
1: just sort of silence. Nothing came out.
2: But he says recently the company has launched the i4 and i7 electric sedans, the iX SUV, and has some smaller EV planned for its sub-brand,
0: Mini. The work they did in those sort of preceding years where we were just like, what's going on? Um, those vehicles drive great.
2: The company recently showed off a concept car designed to preview what's in store for the next generation of electric vehicles. The
0: latest concept is the last concept we will see before they start showing off production vehicles. With Tech Trends, I'm Mike Dubusky, ABC News. Thank you very much, Mike. If everyone has an electric vehicle, are electric vehicles even a trend anymore? I'll send that feedback directly to Mr. Dubusky. Amanda Shikarchi, for today's entertainment report, the Toronto International Film Festival is underway.
3: Thanks, Dave. Yes, it's definitely a really exciting time here in Toronto. This past weekend was the opening weekend at TIFF. The festival is quieter than usual as there are less celebrity appearances. This is due to the ongoing actors and writers' strike. However, there was a diverse lineup of films. The Boy in the Heron, also known as How Do You Live, focuses on World War II. On Saturday, rapper Lil Nas X made an appearance during the premiere of his documentary Long Live Montero. Screen star Neve Campbell also made an appearance to promote the documentary that she executive produced, Swan Song. Another highlight was Dream Scenario, a film starring Nicolas Cage. His character, Paul Matthews, enters other people's dreams and becomes an overnight (laughs) celebrity. So, Um... Dave, how do... Film festivals
0: influence your interest in watching a film directly? Not at all. Indirectly, quite a bit. If I find out something wins, like the Palme d'Or or the Best in Show, at a film festival, and then I see a trailer that I find appealing, or I find out it got a standing ovation at the film festival, it is going to indirectly influence my desire to watch it. But I'm still going to want to know what it's about, who directed it. Uh, I want to see a trailer before I go plunk down my hard-earned dollars, Amanda. But I would say, like, just the notion of something was at a film festival, like, that's pretty much a zero for me. I I need to know you've actually done something beyond just get screened at the festival.
3: Yeah, I totally agree with you. I feel like for me it'll definitely influence my going because I feel like it'll open me up to maybe genres of films that I wouldn't typically watch leisurely like, you know, typically I don't usually watch a lot of documentary films but maybe I'm like well I'm at this festival and this looks interesting so I might as well give it a watch.
0: Yeah, I will say having gone to the Yorkton Film Fest earlier this year, one of my big regrets is I spent a lot more time doing industry stuff and networking stuff rather than engaging in the art. I only made it to really one screening, maybe one and a half if you count uh, one of the dabbles I did in one of the private screening rooms, which is, by the way, super cool. Well done, Yorkton Film Festival, allowing private screenings on demand in uh, individual rooms around the festival. Super cool. I like that a lot <laughs> as a media member. But yeah, one of my regrets was not engaging more with the art itself. I spent myself engaging with the artists, but not necessarily watching their documentaries or watching their films or watching their shows. So if I end up going back to Yorkton, Saskatchewan next year, my goal will actually be to do less industry navel gazing and more grappling with the art and celebrating the art that's being platformed. But in terms of the outside looking in, uh, a film festival is not going to influence me. Amanda, I don't have a lot of accessibility preferences at a festival. What about you?
3: As long as there's good audio description and the schedule is like easy to view for screen readers so you can see, okay, I know which film is playing now. That would definitely be like features that I think will be helpful to me Yeah, because then I know what film I'm going to be watching and where I'm going to be watching it and if it's something that I'll be interested in.
0: Yeah, and you can plan accordingly, right on. Well, Amanda, thank you for giving up an update on TIFF. Have a great day. Talk to you tomorrow.
3: Thank you so much.
0: That's Amanda Shikarchi with your entertainment report. Coming up after the break, I've got the regional news update, and then I will once again flip over this table with enthusiasm, talking about football with Brock Richardson. Figurative flipping of the table, not literal. People would be very mad at me if I destroyed the studio. (laughs) This is Now with Dave Brown on AMI-tv. Hey, Dave Brown here. If you enjoy this podcast portion of our show, remember you can watch it live every day at 9 a.m. Eastern time on AMI-tv.